You're listening to the Grace Church Podcast, a weekly podcast dedicated to bringing you biblical guidance to life's most important issues. We want to thank you for joining us for this week's message. We pray you find strength and encouragement as we learn from God's truth together. For more information, go to visitgracechurch.com. Good morning. You guys doing well today? Ten of you? Okay, I can work with that. It's good. Well, my name is Shannon. I have the privilege of being the Grace Group Director here at Grace Church. Uh, real quick, just want to say a welcome to those of you that are joining us in the venue this morning. Uh, that's here at our Overland Park campus. Uh, of course, in a couple months, we're going to be able to say welcome to those of you joining us in Olathe as well. We're really excited about that. Uh, or if you happen to be joining us online, uh, each and every week we have a good number of people following our worship services online. And so whether you're in Raytown, Missouri, or Cape Town, South Africa, or anywhere in between, we're grateful that you're a part of what we're doing this weekend at Grace. Uh, this weekend, we are continuing our series we started a couple weeks back. It's called Airplane Mode, uh, which is where we're talking about our need to unplug from the distractions, from the busyness in our life, and instead focus on our connection, our communication, our prayer life with God. Uh, in fact, I'm kind of curious, just a show of hands here. How many of you, when you're on a flight and the flight attendant asks you to put all of your devices into airplane mode, you feel a little bit of anxiety like I do? Like you don't like being cut off from the outside world. Like, what if my kids didn't get a hold of me? What if, okay, it's like a couple of you. All right, let me ask this. Let's flip the coin. How many of you, when you go into airplane mode on a flight, you're like, yes, I'm cut off. <laughs> no calls, no texts, no, okay, all right. So I expect it to be the other way around. That's interesting. How many of you are like, I don't fly? Okay, could be that too. Uh, and so I'm imagining that second group, uh, if you're part of that second group, you're far more productive than people like me. Uh, I always tell people that um, I'm so easily distracted. I always tell people that I think a little kid sneezed on me at one point and I caught his ADD. Uh, because whether it's social media or it's, it's uh, breaking news or if it's just a squirrel walking by, I'm just so easily distracted, it seems like. Uh, but here's something kind of interesting. I heard a quote this week from a pastor when he was talking about this topic of prayer. And this is what he said. He said, at the end of our lives, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all the social media will all serve as concrete evidence that we did, in fact, have time to pray. We just chose not to. You know, the truth is, we often use time as our biggest excuse why we don't pray. You know, I got to get the kids to school, and, you know, my wife is a career mom, and all these things. But, you know, we, send, we, we always have time for what we prioritize. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you ever thought about this, too, but time is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter if you're rich, if you're poor. It doesn't matter what your family background is today. Each one of us here today has the same amount of time each and every week, 168 hours. And it's what we do with it that matters. And so that's the point of this series, is for us to uh, cut out the distractions and instead take some time and focus on our connection, our communication, our very prayer life with God. Uh, And so having said that, I want to start off today with a short little story. Uh, A couple weeks back, my wife and I, uh, we got a call one night from one of our friends asking if our kids could come over and play with her kids. Uh, I think her kids were at home bored that night or something like that. Uh, And so, of course, for those of you that are parents, you know what that's really code for. That's code for free babysitting, because somebody actually wants your kids to come over. Uh, And so my wife and I, we decided right away, let's go to a movie, because we never get a chance to go to a movie anymore. Uh, This mainly because we're usually at home praying and reading our Bible, (laughs) as I'm sure most of you are. Uh, And so we got to the theater, and we grabbed our seats, and uh, I asked my wife if there was something she wanted to eat, and so she stayed in the seats, and I ran to the concession. Uh, And so I get up to the counter, and I'm ordering this this large soda, large popcorn, and a pretzel, which came to like $325. (laughs) 
Uh, and, and so uh, the kid behind the counter, he, he looks at me, he says this. He says, would you like to upgrade for another dollar to the supersize soda and popcorn? And so right away I ask him, oh, like, how big is the supersize? And so he points over at this vat that was like next to the counter. I, I mistook it for a, a, a trash can because I'm pretty sure it was on wheels. And I looked at him, I'm like, absolutely, I want a supersize. Why would I now take my money? All right, give me. And so, and the, and the drink wasn't that much smaller than that vat either. It was enormous. All right, and so what was so funny, though, is I'm handing him my debit card. This is what he said to me. It was a perfect upsell. He said, would you be interested in donating a dollar today to the American Diabetes Foundation? And I'm like, well, okay, I might as well, because I'm probably going to get diabetes after drinking this soda anyway, so I'm just helping myself, okay? Uh, and so anyway, here's a thought that occurred to me as I'm walking back to the theater, and I'm hauling this vat of popcorn. I'm wondering what my wife is going to say to me when she sees it. I thought to myself, you know, our culture really is obsessed with this idea of supersizing just about everything we can, aren't we? Right, mind you, I'm walking into a theater called an IMAX theater. I paid a couple extra bucks for our tickets. Why? Because an IMAX theater is bigger. Right? It's better. Right? So we're, just, we're obsessed with supersizing everything we can. All right, so here's a couple easy examples from our everyday life. Uh, for example, two years ago, I was uh, thinking about trading in my car. I, have a, I had a, a Ford Focus at the time. Uh, and of course, I got three little kids, and they're going to get a little bit older, and they're probably going to start killing each other in the back seat. So I thought, I need something a little bit bigger. And so I went to the dealer. The sales guy comes around the corner driving a new Taurus. All right, now, uh, it was a used one, but one of the new models. And like a genius, he parked it right next to my Focus. And uh, my instant thought was, look, it's David and Goliath. <laughs> and Goliath is going to win this one. All right, and so then he walks around, and he opens up the trunk. And I just gasped for air. It's like, you could fit 10 bodies in that thing. He looked at me and said, no, no, 11. And I'm like, oh, why do you know that? Okay, uh, I, be honest, how many of you have vehicles today that you know you can't park in your garage even if you tried? Okay, be, be honest. It's okay. All right, I see you. So, so we park our expensive vehicles in the driveway and we put our cheap junk in our garages now. That's kind of how that works, right? Uh, how about this? Another easy example. Um, my wife and I, we had this, this 47-inch LCD TV in our, our, our living room for the last 10 years. Never thought any, anything was wrong with it or anything until one day we're walking through, uh, I think it was Best Buy, and we saw a 47-inch hanging next to a 72-inch. And I looked over at my wife, and she was already wearing the 3D goggles that came with it. I'm like, uh-oh. The 72-inch didn't even fit in our house, so we couldn't buy it. Praise the Lord, all right? Well, speaking of houses, when I was a kid, we, we were a family of six. I'm the oldest of four kids, and we had one bathroom in our house, right? These days, I'm a family of five. We have three bathrooms in our house, and I'm looking at prices for porta-potties because I don't know. There's sometimes we just don't know what to do with ourselves. Can you guys relate to me? All right, you know it's true, all right? And so really, whether we're talking about our homes, our cars, our, our TVs, our cell phones, our cell phones are getting bigger, our churches, our fast food, without a doubt, there's a clear trend in our culture to supersize just about everything we can possibly supersize, right? In fact, this last week, I read a study that said we tend to associate bigger things as a sign of success, as a sign of accomplishment, you know, and so that's why we, you know, we get a raise, we go out and get a bigger SUV, or we put bigger rims on our car or something like that, because we tend to associate just bigger with better as, as, as being a sign of success. And, and so just to be clear here, let me, I don't want to get any hate emails or anything like that. I, I'm not suggesting that getting uh, a bigger vehicle or anything like that is a bad thing, 
Listen, if you, if you can afford it and you're being a good steward of the money God has blessed you with and you're not going into debt and you're still giving and all those sort of things, I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt not drive a car larger than thy focus or anything like that. I mean, it's okay if you can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's what's so interesting to me. When it comes to the topic that we're talking about this weekend, our prayer life, it seems to me that for some reason the trend in our culture is going in the opposite direction, isn't it? I mean, just think about it. It seems like each generation is praying less and less than the generation before it. In fact, even the nature of our prayers seem like they're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It's like we, maybe we don't think we need God anymore. Unless it's an emergency, there's really no need to pray. Right? And so while we're actively supersizing everything around us, at the same time, we're constantly downsizing. We're minimizing our communication, our prayer life with God. Right? In fact, I remember when I was growing up, my pastor used to challenge us. He said, spend the first hour a day in prayer. And, and you know what? Fast forward to these days, I'm not even sure we could fathom asking something like that. It just doesn't seem like it would even fit in our culture anymore. And, and so clearly the trend in our prayer life seems like it's going in the wrong direction quickly. And so thankfully the passage that we're in, uh, the Lord's Prayer that we're studying, is, I believe Jesus is not only teaching us the correct way to pray, but, but he's also teaching us how we can supersize, how we can God-size our prayers appropriately as well. Right? Because listen, and, and hear me when I say this, without a doubt, we serve a big God. But for some reason, our prayers don't always seem to reflect that reality, right? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse number 7 today. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming up. Just raise your hand up. We would love to give you one. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home as a gift uh, from us to you. Uh, just a w- real quick refresher for those of you not familiar with this particular passage. Uh, like Tim talked about the last couple of weeks, this is Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Honestly, it's going to be the first DVD that I rent someday when I get to heaven. I want to see Jesus preach a sermon. I think that would be so neat. Uh, and interestingly, I think the last time I counted, it was like a 19-point message that he preached. Pretty sure it took a little bit longer than 30 minutes, which is what most churches do these days. Uh, and, and interestingly, for those of you who don't know, just a little cultural nuance as we're handing out the Bibles. Back then, it was normal for a teacher like Jesus, a teacher or preacher, that they would sit the entire time they were teaching, and the crowd would stand the entire time. And so today, I thought we would do this biblically. And so if you would just... Isn't it weird how we flip that around for some reason, right? It's good, right? Uh, and so Matthew 6, verses 7 through 13, let's read this. And when, we, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come before you right now. And Lord, thank you for the power of your word, for teaching us how to pray. Lord, whether we grow up in church or not, odds are there's not a lot of us here that haven't heard about the topic of prayer. But yet, for some reason, we still fail you over and over again. And so I pray, Lord, that you could allow your Holy Spirit to illuminate your text today, help it speak to us, but Lord, also allow your Holy Spirit to motivate us to talk to you more. Lord, we ask this in your name. Everybody said, 
Amen. First two things that we see Jesus teaching us here about supersized prayer uh, are actually two of the most common ways that we are guilty of downsizing, of minimizing our prayer life, and that's when we recite our prayers or we refrain from them altogether. If you're taking notes, that's the first point. If when we recite or we refrain from praying altogether, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but real quick, let's do this. Finish this common prayer that we pray sometimes when we eat. God is great. God is good. Let us you guys can say it with some more, uh, you know, thank you for me, right? You guys have heard the prayer, right? <laughs> so it's a pretty commonly recited prayer. I prayed it when I was a little kid. My kids prayed it for a little while as well. And one of my favorite things is when we'd be out in public, and, and uh, of course, my kids would pray for their meal, like in Denny's or we're at Panera or something like that. And, and they would, for some reason, always have to shout at the top of their lungs, do your kids have like the internal volume issue like mine does? And so we'd be sitting there. It's like they'd start praying, God is great. God is good. And I love watching people around us and how they would react in that moment. They hear little kids praying. They don't even know what they should do, but they, they put their fork down. They pray. <laughs> they say amen. They're like, okay, good, good. I, I don't even know if they're Christians or not, but they're going to pray because little kids were praying. That's one that we recite. Here's, let's do one more. Finish this common bedtime prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I, before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul. So you've heard that one before. Now, I'll be honest, I could never bring myself to teach that one to my kids, let alone pray it myself. It's mainly because it's got to be the most morbid-sounding prayer ever written. And, I mean, who writes a prayer for kids to recite before they go to bed that talks about them dying in their sleep? As if they're not already scared what's underneath the bed or what's going on in the closet. You know, so now we pray with them. We're like, okay, I love you. Okay, good night, honey. I pray that uh, death doesn't steal your soul tonight. I love you. Quick, turn off the light. And we wonder why our kids come out 50 times wanting water, right? And so bottom line, those are a few of the prayers that we recite, that we memorize, and some of us even to this day. And incidentally, if you're raised Catholic, there's a good number of prayers that are memorized and recited. My whole dad's side of my family is Catholic, and I remember a lot of those prayers. Uh, But here's the thing. I am more convinced than ever that these types of memorized, recited prayers are far more dangerous not just to our prayer life, but to our very relationship with God. Let me be clear. I'm not saying they're a bad idea. I'm saying that they are downright hazardous. They are dangerous, right? And here's why I say this. You see, at some point, these prayers, these recited prayers, they become just that. They are words that we are mindlessly reciting. In fact, Tim talked about this in the first week. He talked about how we pray these perfunctory prayers is what it's called. When our mind goes on autopilot, it's not connected to anything in our heart, even really anything in our head. We are just reciting these prayers mindlessly. And so basically saying them over and over not only becomes a ritual and a habit, but I actually believe they become a form of, listen to this, of holy Christian, Christianized superstition, where we feel compelled that we have to pray, whether it's out of guilt or or worry or fear that if we don't pray, we're not going to have a good meal, we're not going to have a good night's sleep, we're not going to have a good day, or we're not going to have travel mercies. God only knows what travel mercies are because I've yet to find those in the Bible. But we feel this like we're compelled to pray, right? In fact, in the original language, that's exactly what Jesus is referring to in verse 7 here when he says, uh, we're not to heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. And that word for Gentiles in the Greek is ethnikos. Everyone say ethnikos. You got to speak Greek. That's cool. All right, and so ethnikos in, in this, it's where we get the English word ethnic. 
And, and in this context, he's speaking of, okay, so I'm talking to, to Christians, believers, now pagans, ethnicos, unbelievers, those who worship false gods is what he's referring to. And so what Jesus is literally saying here is that when we begin to recite our prayers, almost like there's some kind of magical superstitious formula to them, what we're actually doing is we're doing the same thing that the pagans do when they recite their prayers to their false gods. And interestingly, you'll notice up to this point as well that Jesus, if you're familiar with this passage, Jesus has been referring to the hypocrites. When you pray, when you give, when you, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. And yet for some reason, he uses the word ethnikos here, and I believe it's because he's saying that this is even more dangerous than you realize. It's hazardous to your relationship. And just for a minute, consider the crowd that Jesus was talking to that day. So he's talking to Israelites, right? And I, I just got to imagine that there were Israelites listening to Jesus that day, probably thinking back to when they were little kids and their Sunday school lessons and how they probably learned about the prophet Elijah, for instance, in 1 Kings 18, and how the prophet Elijah, he, he, he challenged 450 false prophets of Baal, and he said, go ahead, pray to your false god and have him rain fire down on the altar, and you can consume that altar. And what they did is they ran around in circles for hours, it says, praying the same prayer over and over and over again, trying to get their false god to hear them. And what Jesus is saying here is that we're acting just like them when we mindlessly recite our prayers like there's some kind of formula, superstition. An easy example of this today is, and I'm going to step on some toes here, but easy example of this is, is when we pray before we eat. Because listen, I, I don't know if you've ever been at you know, someone's house as a guest you know, for a meal or something like that, but God forbid you took a bite of a dinner roll before somebody said grace. It's like in that moment, that family is like ready to haul you in front of the deacon board at the church, right? Like you got like grandparents are fainting and little kids are pointing at you yelling, crucify him, he ate food before it's blessed. I mean, seriously, you put food in front of some of us as Christians and we suddenly become these legalistic Pharisees with regards to how we have to pray. And incidentally, if you're here today and maybe you don't identify yourself as a Christian at this point, awesome, I'm glad you're here, but I bet you, you still know what I'm talking about when I say that. Right? We get kind of crazy sometimes about it. And, and please don't misunderstand me. I'm going to clarify this again. All right? Don't send me hate emails or anything, but I'm not suggesting we shouldn't pray before our meals. I'm not even suggesting that we can't repeat our prayers. Of course we're going to repeat our prayers. But what I am saying is that, is that when we start mindlessly reciting them like there's some kind of formula to them, they quickly become nothing more than superstitious rituals than sincere reasons to talk to God. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is this, why are we praying right now? What's our motivation to pray right now? Is it a ritual to appease God, or is it a reason to talk to God? Write that down if you're taking notes. Prayer is not a ritual to appease God. It is a reason to talk to God. And incidentally, for those of us that are parents, we have to be so mindful of this. We have to be careful, because if we're not careful, what we're doing is we're raising really well-behaved Pharisees, really well-behaved children, but they're not followers of Jesus. They don't have a relationship, but they can recite prayers. I would much rather have followers of Jesus in my house than super well-behaved kids that don't know him. We have to be careful with that. So moving on, now that Jesus has warned us not to make our prayers like a ritual, now he tells us in verse 8, he says that I, it's something I firmly believe is the biggest reason why Christians don't pray, why we refrain from praying altogether. All right, and so Jesus says in verse 8, he says, don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. 
Now, be honest, and you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but have you ever thought to yourself, okay, so if God already knows what I need, I mean, he knows what I'm thinking. He's God. I mean, he knows the future. He knows all. I mean, so if he already knows what I need, he knows what I'm going to ask. He's so sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Anyway, I mean, do I really need to pray? I mean, he's God. So maybe you're holier than I am, but I've thought that at times. I've struggled with that. It's like, why do I really need to pray if he already knows what I'm going to ask? But you know what? That logic is seriously flawed when you think about it. And let, let me illustrate it real easily here. Let me ask this. How many of you are married today? Married people, raise your hand up. Okay. Uh, husbands, do you remember that moment in time when you were going to ask your, your future wife to marry you? Like maybe you got down on one knee and you opened up the ring box and you said, will you marry me? When I was, uh, this was 14 years ago, this Christmas Eve, I, I decided to ask Holly, my wife, to marry me. Uh, and, and, and so I, I took her over to the college where we had originally met. Uh, again, it's Christmas Eve, so nobody's around. There's snow on the ground. It's later at night. There's this gazebo in the courtyard, and it was all lit up with Christmas lights. It was perfect. And I was nervous as all, as, as can be. All right, but, but here's the thing. My wife, she's a sharp cookie. Right, and she totally figured out what I was doing. I mean, she knew something was up, right? We talked about marriage, and here I am. I mean, why are we going outside to a gazebo in the middle of the night? I mean, this doesn't make any sense, Shannon. So she figured out at some point what I'm doing. All right, and so knowing that, let's just pretend for a minute, hypothetically, all right, that, that, that I got down on one knee that night. I looked up in her, her blue eyes, and I said to her, well... You already know what I'm going to ask, don't you? So do I really have to ask it? What's your answer? How many of you know I wouldn't be married today <laughs> if, that, if we did that, if I did that, right? right? And so here's my point. Just because she knew what I was going to ask doesn't mean I was suddenly exempt from having to ask it. Right? Because my point is this, is that without real communication, there is no hope of a real relationship. Communication is vital to relationships. For some of us in our marriages, that's the best we ever communicated was when we asked them to marry us. That's sad. All right, and so it's communication's vital. All right, so you notice here that, that, that Jesus didn't say, when you pray, your father knows what you need before you ask him, so go ahead and take an automatic mental break because you don't have to ask. He's going to do it anyway. All right, that's not what he says. In fact, he wants us to talk to him. He wants us to engage with him. All right, in fact, you know what? Sometimes, instead of asking God for our prayers, we just take matters into our own hands, don't we? Right? Listen to what James says in chapter 4, verse 2 of his book. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. And whether that's with our words or our actions, we murder. He, then he goes on to say that you covet and you can obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so in other words, instead of just talking to God and asking him, instead what we do is we decide to take matter into our own hands. I mean, why not? I mean, I make a decent salary and I've got resources and there's, do I really need to ask God anyway? So we take matters into our own hands and the results are never as good as they could have been if we'd just gone to God first, if we just asked him. Mark Batterson says it this way. He says, the greatest tragedy in life is the prayer that goes unanswered because it goes unasked. And so the question I have is, what are you not asking God today? What's happening in your life or the life of a loved one, and you're just not even asking? He wants us to ask. 
Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. And he again tells us in John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. In other words, if I live in your heart and you are follower of me, he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Time and time and time again in Scripture, God is appealing to us, talk to me, ask me, make your requests known. I desire to communicate with you. I want to have a relationship with you. And the good news is is that we serve a loving God, an amazing God, a generous God who who delights in his children is what Scripture teaches us. All right, and so the same way we love giving gifts to our children and providing for them, listen, every Christmas when I give gifts to my kids, I'm more excited than they are, if that's even possible. Why would we not think our Heavenly Father views us in the same way? He loves to be generous with us. All right? And so again, just because we, 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 he knows what we need before we ask doesn't mean we're exempt from talking to him. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Prayer is the lifeline in our relationship with God. It is vital. It is the lifeline in our relationship with God. And here's the really neat thing. The more personal and intimate our prayers are, the more personal and intimate our relationship with God becomes. Isn't it amazing how that works in relationships? And it's so true with God as well. All right, and so thankfully, God wants us to supersize our prayers, not refrain, not recite, but to supersize them. So moving on, this is the second point that I have today. We're jumping down to verse 10. Tim did an amazing job last week of unpacking verse 9 and talking about how we should acknowledge God as our Heavenly Father when we pray. All right, and so Jesus goes on to tell us in verse 10 now how we can, like, supersize our prayer request when he says this. This is how you should pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This last week, I came across an article in the news, and maybe some of you caught it as well. It was on the bottom of a website that I was reading, and it, it really caught my attention. And here's, here's a picture of that article. This is the title. It said, the universe has 10 times more galaxies than originally thought. I'm like, whoa. So it seemed like that should be like a headline news or something. That's big news. All right, and so uh, the article went on to say that apparently researchers were doing some calculations using the Hubble telescope and blah, 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 blah. They came up with the conclusion that uh, the observable universe is actually one to two trillion galaxies, not 100 or 200 billion like originally thought. All right, so not double, not triple, not quadruple, 10 times bigger than what we originally thought. And you'll notice there that they kept saying the word observable galaxy. So here's what we found out. The observable galaxy is 10 times bigger than we originally thought. And beyond that, the observable galaxy, astronomers believe, is only 10% of the entire galaxy. For just some added perspective on that, go ahead and turn your attention to the screens. Watch this video.
Does anyone feel just a little bit smaller? Here's the amazing thing. What boggles the mind, though, is that God is even bigger. God is even bigger. Psalm 147.4 says it like this. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. He not only puts the stars in the sky, but he has named each one of them. Hebrews 11.4 or 11.3 says it this way. The universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He spoke it into existence. In fact, there's a Latin term that comes to mind when I hear that verse. It's called ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. And what it means is out of nothing came something. In physics, that is an impossible notion. You can't create something out of nothingness, but God spoke the universe into existence as we know it today. So bottom line, when we pray, we need to remember that we are praying to an unfathomably enormous, majestic, powerful God that not only spoke the known universe into existence, but he himself is, he, he, he exists outside the confines, the limitations of time and space. Right? In fact, think, think about this. If you've got something you're praying about that's happening next week or next month or, you know, maybe a job interview or someone's sick or surgery or something like that, consider this. God is already there. He exists outside of time. If you really want to boggle your mind, remember when you prayed last week? He's still there, too. He's not confined. He's not limited by space and time like we are. And so the question is, why would we ever rely on someone else other than God? And so knowing that when Jesus tells us here in verse 10 that we should pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what he's telling us is not only do our prayers have implications in this universe, this kingdom, but he's saying that our prayers have implications in the kingdom come, in the heavenly realms. Our prayers have some serious legs. They travel. They are powerful. James tells us they are powerful and effective. And yet, for some reason, we spend our time either reciting the same prayer over and over or we're just refraining from them altogether. Like, sometimes I wonder that if our prayers aren't really that intimidating to us, are they a little bit insulting to God? If they're not intimidating to us, are they a little bit insulting? And don't get me wrong here. I'm not suggesting that God doesn't care about the small things. In fact, the next verse, verse 11, he tells us to pray for our daily bread. He prays, he he wants us to ask him for our daily sustenance, even the smallest things, right? But listen, here's a God that spoke the universe into existence, not bound by space and time. His word tells us that he can do all things, and yet for some reason, the biggest prayer that we can muster up some weeks is that we have a good day. I wonder sometimes if God is, is thinking, Really? Is that it? You know who I am, right? You can ask a little bit more than that. I have this friend by the name of Dean. I've known him for about 20 years now. Dean, Dean's the kind of guy when you meet him, you either really love him or you can't stand him. Most people think he's certifiably crazy. They have a point. Uh, and so, He is one of the craziest people I know. When he was a teenager, he grew up on the streets of Chicago, not that far from where I grew up, and he was constantly in trouble. He was in and out of foster care, selling drugs at one point, always in trouble with the law. Uh, And so what happened was when Dean was 16 years old, there was this pastor in his neighborhood who gave him a Bible and told him to read it. And so Dean, just despite the pastor, read it cover to cover. Take that. And he says he put it down, the testimony, his testimony, he said when he put it down, he, he said, God is awesome. 
And he decided, I want to be a follower of Jesus. But not only that, I don't want to be a casual Christian, which is what he had encountered up, the, up to that point in his life, only encountered casual Christians. And so fast forward to today, he's, he's been a pastor now for like 25, 30 years. And he's just as crazy as ever. A couple years ago, I was at a youth camp with him. He was speaking at the youth camp. And I remember before service, he had some prayer time. And, and, and I remember listening to his prayers and just being freaked out at his prayers. The kind of prayers that he preached. Right? For instance, I remember he prayed that everybody at the United Nations would get saved. Who even thinks about that? Right? He prayed that every child in the world that's hungry would be filled with food. I mean, not even like handing them food and having them eat it. He prayed that God would create the food in their stomachs. Oh my goodness. He prayed that God would bring revival to the porn industry. Can you imagine? He even prayed that dead people would come back to life. And you know what? Dean doesn't pray those kind of prayers because he, he wants to be famous or he wants to be in the five o'clock news, but what he, what he does is he prays these prayers knowing that God performs miracles like that when we ask him, when we talk to him, when we make our big request to him. And the amazing thing is, is that then God's name is known. Then God's powerful and almighty and people get to see who he really is. That's what he wants to do, right? And so Dean prays these supersized prayers because he has this supersized view of God. And every time I hear him pray, I walk away thinking, I've got to be the wimpiest Christian on the planet. And then I wonder to myself, why are my prayers not more intimidating? Why do they not feel more impossible to me when I pray them? I mean, what would happen if we prayed more with our kids, more than just having a good day in school, but instead we prayed for all-out revival in their school the same way D.L. Moody did 100 years ago? What would happen if we prayed for more than just our favorite candidate getting elected into office, but instead we prayed for all of our nation's leaders to fall on their knees and to seek God for every decision that they have to make? Like Billy Graham has been praying for how many years, Right? What would happen if we prayed for more than just keep us safe, but instead we prayed for our enemies like Jesus tells us to, enemies like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, that they would drop their weapons, that they would repent, turn from their ways, and that they would follow and worship the one true living God. Like, kind of like what Paul did at the Damascus Road when God got a hold of his life. He went from terrorist to preacher. What would happen if we prayed for more than just keep us healthy, but instead we started praying for people in hospitals that are paralyzed for them to get up and walk out of the hospital like Peter did in Acts chapter 3 at the gate called Beautiful? What would happen? What would happen if we prayed prayers like more than just traveling mercies? I still don't know what those are, but instead we prayed for the sun to stand still like Joshua did in chapter 10 of Joshua's book. So the Lord could defeat his enemies decisively. What would happen? Because when I read prayers like that, like Joshua, I think to myself, that is a big prayer. Who thinks to pray like that? But to God, he's probably thinking, you know, Joshua, I created a couple trillion more of those sons. I could hit the pause button on those if you want to. Write this down if you're taking notes, all right? God praying bold Supersized prayer, they honor God. And God honors bold, supersized prayers. You know what? When we pray bold, big prayers, we are honoring God because we are confessing you are a big God and we need you to answer them because in ourselves we cannot do this. And so if our prayers aren't, aren't at all intimidating to us, sometimes I wonder, what's wrong with our prayers? What's going on? 
Let me, let me close with this thought today. You know, whenever I used to um, read the prayers that I see in Scripture and see the miracles that God performed, Joshua's prayers or Paul or Peter or even my friend Dean, I used to think to myself, what kind of faith do these people have? Like, seriously, what kind of faith are they walking around with? It's got to be amazing. All right, but here's the thing. I no longer think that that is the right question, and here's why. You see, in Matthew 17, Jesus tells us that the faith of a mustard seed can do what? You can say it out loud. It's okay. It can move mountains, right? In fact, in Ephesians 2, Paul teaches us that faith doesn't even come from us. It comes from God. It's a gift from God, right? And so technically, faith can't be our problem today because if we're criticizing someone for you don't have enough faith, what we're really saying is that God didn't give you enough faith. He made a mistake, and clearly he's imperfect. And we know that's not the case. So faith can't be the issue today because the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. Clearly, that can't be the problem. So I don't think that our problem is the size of our faith. I actually think our problem is the size of our God. How do we view God today? Maybe some of us here, we view God as being like a, a holy concierge that's just there for our wants, needs, desires, whenever, whenever we want. Maybe some of us view God as being like this holy 911 dispatcher. He's just there for emergencies and we don't need him otherwise. Maybe we view God as being a holy disciplinarian. He's just there to thump us on the head every time we make a mistake. He just can't wait to discipline us. Maybe we view God as like this this holy snuggy blanket. You guys remember those snuggy blankets with the holes for the arms and oh my goodness. Maybe we view him kind of like that. Like we just want him to keep us warm and fuzzy. Right? How do we view God today? Because, right? listen, those sorts of views of God lead to the kind of prayers we've been talking about, the small, downsized, minimized prayers. And so whatever the case might be, we need to view God for who he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of many miracles, the God that keeps his promises to a thousand generations, a God that is loving and generous and giving and wants a relationship with his children, and he keeps telling us to ask, to request, to talk to him, to communicate with him. And so bottom line, listen, if we want to have a supersized prayer life today, it has to start with a supersized view of God. Because if we don't have an accurate view of God, Our prayers can't reflect that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a big God. You are a loving God. And Lord, I pray today that you would challenge us. You'd allow the Holy Spirit to move inside of us, Lord, that we would begin to pray prayers that reflect how amazing and big you truly are. Lord, we don't want to just recite prayers. We don't want to just do them because it's a ritual. But instead, we want to make our requests known to you. You constantly are telling us to ask and to talk and to to knock and seek, Lord. And Lord, we want to do just that today. So Lord, when we leave here in a few moments, Lord, I pray for opportunities in our week, Lord, where we might encounter situations that seem impossible. They might seem intimidating. Lord, our our first prompting should be to pray because we serve a big God. Help us to pray big prayers because you are a big God. And we want to reflect that in how we talk to you. Lord, we ask this in your wonderful name. Everyone said, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have questions or would like to contact us for prayer, please email us at info at visitgracechurch.com. For more information about our ministries, location, and service times, go to visitgracechurch.com.